Good morning, everybody. Uh, This morning's Bible reading is John chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. And for those who'd like to follow along on the Pew Bibles, it's page 1078. John 12, beginning at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to, to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning everyone, my name's Gordon, if I haven't met you, it's great to, to be with you this morning. And uh, it's great that we can sit all together under God's word, young and old, uh, it's great that we can do that. And also, I just want to say before we start, a massive thank you for everyone who helped out with the letterbox drop. Uh, at the end of last Sunday, I went over to the back of the table to see what was left and it was all gone. So that's a great testament to, I think, how we've been doing this Easter campaign as a church, as a team. So thank you for everyone who got involved with that. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Gospel of John that we've been studying together this term. Uh, Thank you for our Lord Jesus, our Good Shepherd. Help us to listen to his voice now. Uh, Help us to follow after him. In his name we pray. Amen. When I was uh, seven years old, 
I got the birthday present that every seven-year-old back then、uh, dreamt about.、Uh, it was this: a Game Boy. Anyone had a game? Did anyone have a Game Boy? Yeah, there we go.、Uh, this was way before you know you played games on apps and all that, right?、Uh, you had these cartridges, right? That you had to stick on the back of the Game Boy, and that's how you play a game.、Uh, I remember my uncle in Hong Kong taking me to buy a game.、Uh, took me to a shop, a bit of a questionable shop actually, and he bought me this game cartridge, and it had 30 games in one. 30 games in one. I was so happy. Um, I later learnt that not all of those games were、uh, were totally legal. So, just a but my favourite game was in that 30-in-one cartridge, and this was the game. Whoop! Next slide.、It's、stuck. <laughs> There we go. It's in Japanese, but it says Ultraman. Ultraman.、Uh, he was this Japanese superhero. Uh, and there's a picture there of what the game looks like on the Game Boy. But in this game, in Ultraman, you get to be Ultraman, and so you fight all these bad guys. And if you defeat them, you get to the end of the level. And at the end of the level, there's a boss, the boss of that level, and he was like this alien、uh, monster thing. And if you beat him, then you get to go to the next level. And if you fight all the bad guys in that level, you go to the end of that level. And there's another boss they have to fight, and he was bigger and scarier than the previous boss. And if you beat him, you get to go to the next level. And so the game was pretty simple. Each level got a bit harder. Each boss got a bit scarier and bigger、um, than before. And if you were so good that you got to the last level and beat, you got to face the last boss, the biggest boss. He was like a dinosaur, dragon, Godzilla kind of looking thing. And if you beat him, then you win the game. And then the Game Boy would play this celebration music. The lights would flash, and you'd be the happiest seven-year-old boy in the world. Now, what has this got to do with anything? Well,、uh, John chapters one to eleven, which is what we've been looking at in the last couple of months, it's a bit like this game. It's a bit like this game. We've seen Jesus do sign after sign. He turns water into wine. He heals a disabled man. He heals a blind man. Each sign gets more and more impressive. Each challenge that Jesus comes up against gets more and more harder, harder and harder. Sorry. And then in chapter 11, John chapter 11, which is what we'll actually look at next week for Easter,、uh, but it's actually the chapter before our passage today, John 12. In John chapter 11, Jesus defeats the biggest boss of them all. Jesus does the most impressive miracle of them all. He raises a man. Lazarus from the dead. That, so that's that's the background to what we read today in John 12. Jesus is like that superhero who has finished the game. He's won the game. He's defeated the biggest boss of them all, death. It can be very easy to think of Jesus like a superhero. You know, to just co- sort of close your eyes and imagine up the greatest superhero of all. You know, all, all the amazing powers. They can do everything. To me, it's really easy to just imagine up this superhero and give him the name Jesus, and that's who your Jesus is. That's your picture of Jesus. But this passage that we read today in John 12, the Palm Sunday passage, today's Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, and this passage reminds us that we actually need to let the Bible tell us who Jesus is. We need to let the Bible tell us who Jesus is. These. Two stories, very well-known stories about Jesus that we read today. They're actually about two very outrageous acts, 
two outrageous acts that when we look closely will show us not just who Jesus really is, but what he really came to do. So two stories, uh, maybe familiar stories to you if you've been to church for a while, if you've read the Bible. Um, two familiar stories, but two outrageous acts. And so the first story uh, is from verses 1 to 11. Uh, it's about Jesus, uh, his friend Mary anoints Jesus' uh, feet with perfume and then wipes it with her hair. And uh, as you're reading, you probably don't really need to understand the culture of that time to know that this is a really strange act to do. This is a really strange thing for Mary to do. So just imagine that you're at a big dinner party. Your friends are there. Uh, everyone's sitting down and eating and chatting. Uh, there's a good dinner vibe, you know. Um, there's the noise of cutlery, ting, 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 as people are eating. There's the noise of chatter and conversation. And then silence. Everyone stops eating. Everyone stops chatting. The whole room looks. The whole room looks at a young woman standing there, holding a bottle of perfume. This isn't one of those little bottles of Chanel that you could buy at the shop. This is a pint. Verse 3, a pint. This is like half a litre bottle of perfume. Imagine that she starts walking over to you. She kneels at your feet. She takes off your shoes. She takes off your socks. And then she pops open this big bottle of perfume and pours the whole thing out all over your feet. It's now dripping all over the floor. And as it's dripping there, she unties her hair and then wipes your feet with her hair. There's now just like a pint of perfume, a whole bottle of perfume at your feet. And you know, when you walk past someone at Lemoore and you know that they've probably done too many sprays of perfume because you can smell it from quite a fair way away, this isn't two or three extra you know, sprays. This, this is a whole bottle. John says the whole house, the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is truly a multi-sensory experience, isn't it? But it gets even more outrageous than that. We're told in verse 5 just how expensive this perfume is. A year's wage. Now I did some maths and went down a little rabbit hole into expensive perfumes and fragrances on the internet. Uh, if you took the average annual wage of Willoughby, and if you did sort of all the maths on ounces and pints and Australian dollars to US dollars, uh, this is what you could get. Uh, Baccarat, I'm not even going to try and pronounce that. Um, Prash can. Prash has got great French. Uh, <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, this is the fourth most expensive perfume in the world. The fourth most expensive perfume in the world. This is, this is the equivalent of what Mary used that day on Jesus. Just think about that. And as you think about that, Judas's objection to all this in verse 5, Judas's objection to this seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Doesn't it seem so wasteful to spend that much money on a perfume that you're going to just splash away in one go? But notice how Jesus responds in verse 7 to him. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 
He is not just a man willing to stick up for a friend who's gone way out of her way to do something for him. You know, we know from John 11 that Jesus was very good friends with Mary, with, with Mary and also Martha and Lazarus, her, her siblings. But here, Jesus' response doesn't just show his gentleness and tenderness and care for his friend, but he also shows that Mary understands something about Jesus that no one else does. Not, none of the other disciples like Judas do. Uh, we're reminded twice in this story that Jesus had raised Lazarus, uh, Mary's brother, back to life. So it's mentioned there in verse 1. It's also mentioned there in verse 9. It's almost like this author, uh, the author really wants us to know this fact that Jesus had done this uh, for Lazarus, for Mary. And it, that sort of helps us make sense of why Mary would do such an outrageous thing for Jesus. You'd pay, you know, you'd pay anything to get your brother back from the dead, right? And so we can understand how grateful she is to Jesus. But Jesus, in verse 7, he doesn't say that Mary did this uh, because uh, he had brought her brother back to life. It's not out of gratitude that Jesus uh, talks about the reason for this in verse 7. Jesus says that she saved this for his burial. For his burial. And I think this is key. See, Mary's outrageous act of affection of gratitude, of love to Jesus, it only makes sense. It only makes sense if you understand that Jesus is going to die. It only makes sense in light of his cross. I will come back to that a bit later. But the second story, uh, from verses 12 to 19, uh, it follows on. Uh, it's the, next, the very next day. and We're told in verse 12, and actually even before that in verses 9 and 11, that there was a big crowd that had been following Jesus. Jesus was getting quite popular. And you can kind of imagine, he just raised a man back to life. So the crowd is following him uh, in verse 12. And this crowd had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, the capital. And so they went out, you know, they go out to meet him. And if you sort of had a chance to read a historical you know, book, history book about this period, or even a commentary on this passage, uh, this festival that we're told about in verse 12 in Jerusalem, the whole nation actually came to this festival, came to Jerusalem for this festival. So don't think of this crowd as like a footy crowd. You know, I think ANZ Stadium in Homebush has a capacity of like 80-something thousand. Historians say that this crowd in Jerusalem could be two to three million. Two to three million. It's even bigger than an army. And notice what they're shouting. Verse 13, they took palm branches and went out to, to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means give salvation now. Give salvation now. What salvation are we talking about? Well, these Jews, you've got to understand, were being oppressed. They've been oppressed for centuries by different kings and emperors. And now they're under oppression from Rome. They're sitting under the oppressive rule of Rome. What else do they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, which is all about God's Messiah, God's King, coming to enact God's salvation and God's victory. They're quoting a psalm all about God's victory. And what else do they say? Blessed is the King of Israel. Blessed is the King of Israel. Make no mistake, what this crowd of two to three million people are shouting is hugely political. This is hugely political. But that's not the outrageous act in the story. The outrageous act of this story is actually what happens next. I wonder if you've understood what's happening so far. This has all the ingredients 
of a political revolt, of a Jewish coup. You know, Jesus, he's just defeated death. He's just raised a man from death. Now he has an army, a crowd of two to three million to draw an army from, to, to go into Jerusalem, to, to make himself king, to defeat the Romans. That's what's, that's what's here. So what does Jesus do next? Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Uh, this here is uh, a picture or statue of Alexander the Great, one of the greatest conquerors of world history. And his, in the statue, is riding his famous war horse, Bucephalus, is also a well-known war horse in, in world history, one of the most famous war horses. Jesus deliberately choosing not to get on that, not to get on a war horse like that, but to get on a small little donkey instead. That's the outrageous act in this passage, in this story. That's the outrageous act. Uh, John next, very immediately, quotes from the Old Testament, from Zechariah 9, which actually was written very close to the time of Alexander the Great. And the point is that from the very beginning, God had always meant for his king, his promised king, to be different. See, military force and power, it's never the way for God's promised king. It's not the kind of king Jesus is. Jesus is the king. And more than ever, he had the chance to gain success and power, humanly speaking, earthly speaking, but chose instead to turn away from that, to walk down a different path, a path of lowliness, and humility that led ultimately to his humiliating death as a criminal, a path that led to suffering and death on a cross. But then glory, but then glory. Notice in verse 16 that Jesus will be glorified. He had come to Jerusalem to be glorified, but not as a military king, not as a human successful king, but as a shepherd king who would willingly lay down his life to save others. See, we've seen two stories here, uh, two stories, well-known stories, but about two outrageous acts, you know, Mary anointing Jesus with very expensive perfume, Jesus choosing deliberately to ride on a donkey instead of a war horse. Both these acts, both these stories only make sense in light of the cross. You can only understand both stories. You can only understand Palm Sunday in light of Good Friday. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about following Jesus, Jesus the Good Shepherd. Have you ever thought about where Jesus is leading you as you follow him? Have you ever thought about what path Jesus is leading you down? What path will you go down if you follow Jesus? Well, it's not down Hollywood Boulevard. It's not down Wall Street or Mayfair. Not like that. If Jesus went down the path of suffering first and then glory... If Jesus went down that path, then we who follow him shouldn't expect that we'll live a life full of success and pleasure. Uh, when I'd just become a Christian, I remember an older Christian at church actually telling me this analogy. He said, imagine that you're on a plane and the air hostess comes to you and said, uh, you should put on this parachute. Uh, if you put it on, it will make you feel really happy. Uh, people will look up to you and so you go, okay, I'll put it on. You put on the parachute but then, after a while, you notice that everyone on the plane is sort of staring at you, and you know, none of them are wearing the parachute. 
And they start you know, giggling and laughing at you, and so you go, what, what's the point of wearing this? And so you take it off. Imagine instead that the air just comes to you and says, put on this parachute right now, because this plane, it's going down. This plane's going down. Will you put it on? Of course you will. You wouldn't care if it made you look a little bit silly. You wear a parachute not because it makes you feel good, but because it'll save you. And so is following Jesus worth it? Is following this king who rejects earthly success and chooses suffering, is, that, is following that kind of king worth it? Or only in light of the cross? It only makes sense. It's only worth it if you understand that this king is also the one who laid down his life to save you, to save you from hell and judgment. You follow Jesus because he died for you, not because he'll make your life more comfortable. But Jesus isn't just a king we're following. He's also a friend. He's a friend. That's what the Mary story brings out. In the very next chapters of John, actually, Jesus will ask his disciples that he, to call him friend, not master, but friend. See, understanding that Jesus died for you is actually to understand that Jesus wants to be your friend. He wants to be your friend, just like he was a friend to Mary. I remember someone else uh, asking me once, you know, why do you Christians you know, spend so much time loving Jesus, you know, singing songs about him, reading about him? Why don't you, you know, spend more time feeding the poor or fixing the world or fixing the environment? Well, firstly, I think she didn't realize that actually we do a lot of that stuff. Of course, you know, we can do more, but we do do that. But secondly, and most importantly, I think she didn't understand the cross. She didn't understand the cross. You see, Christians do love Jesus. We do cherish him only because we know how much he loves us, how much he sacrificed for us on the cross. And I wonder if you look at that Mary story and, and you know, what she did or you know, the outrageous things that she did for Jesus, I wonder if you look at that and think, you know, I could never do that. I don't think I love Jesus that much. You know, even if I tried, I don't think I could do that. Well, the answer is not to try harder. The answer is not to try harder, it's actually to look at the cross, to look at Good Friday. See, Palm Sunday reminds us that the Easter story is not peripheral to what we believe, it's at the absolute heart of it, it's the absolute center of what we believe. And so, do you need to come again and reflect on this Easter story? Do you need to come and, and meditate again on what happened that weekend? when Jesus died and rose again for you. That's how you see that Jesus is not just a king worth following, but also a friend worth cherishing.